Chapter Five of *The Tiger of Mysore* by G. A. Henty. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mike Harris. *The Tiger of Mysore* by G. A. Henty. Chapter Five. War declared. That gives you a general idea, Dick, of the war with Tippoo. I saw little of the events after the Battle of Porto Novo as my father was taken ill soon after and died at Madras. Seeing that there was no probability whatever of the English driving Hyder back until they had much larger forces and a much better system of management, I remained in Madras until peace was made. Then I came back here, rebuilt the palace, and have since been occupied in trying to restore the prosperity of my poor people. It is, I feel, a useless task, for it is certain that ere long the English will again be engaged with Mysore and if they are, it's well-nigh certain that Tippoo's hordes will again sweep down from the hills and carry ruin and desolation everywhere. He would, as Hyder had, have the advantage on his side at the beginning of the war. He has a score of passes to choose from, and can descend on to the plain by any one he may select. And even were there a force here capable of giving battle to the whole Mysorean army, it could not watch all the passes, and, as to do so, the army would have to be broken up into a dozen commands. Tippu will, therefore, again be able to ravage the plains for weeks, perhaps, before the English can force him to give battle. But there is no army at present in existence of sufficient strength to meet him. The Madras force would have to wait until reinforcements arrived from Calcutta. It was bad before, but it will be worse now. Hyder, no doubt, slaughtered many, but he was not cruel by nature. He carried off enormous quantities of people with their flocks and herds, but he did this to enrich Mysore with their labor and did not treat them with unnecessary cruelty. Tippu, on the other hand, is a human tiger. He delights in torturing his victims, and slays his prisoners from pure love of bloodshed. He is proud of the title of tiger. His footstool is a tiger's head, and the uniforms of his infantry are a sort of imitation of a tiger's stripes. He has military talent, and showed great judgment in command of his division. Indeed, most of the successes gained during the last war were his work. Since then he has labored incessantly to improve his armies. Numbers of regiments have been raised, composed of the captives carried off from here and from the west coast. They are drilled in European fashion by the English captives he still holds in his hands. But why, uncle, instead of giving time to Tippoo to come down here, should we not march up the passes and compel him to keep his army up there to defend Tsaringapatam? Because, Dick, in the first place, there is not an army strong enough to do so. But even were there a force of fifty thousand men at Madras, they could not take the offensive in time. An English army cannot move without a great train to carry ammunition, stores, and provisions, and to get such a train together would be the work of months. As I have been telling you, during the three years the last war lasted, the Madras authorities were never able to collect such a train, and the consequence was that their army was unable to go more than two or three days' march from the city. On the other hand, Tippu could any day order that three days' supply of rice or grain should be served out to each soldier, and could set out on his march the following morning. As from the moment he reached the plains, his cavalry would have the whole of the resources of the country at their mercy. I see, uncle, then, if war broke out, you would at once go to Madras again? There would be nothing else to do, Dick. I should send everything of value down there as soon as I saw that war was inevitable. The traders here have already begun to prepare. The shops are half empty, for they have not replaced goods they have sold, and a very few hours would suffice for everything worth taking to be cleared out of the town. 
the country round here is comparatively uninhabited, and but a small portion of it tilled, so great was the number carried off by Hyder. Next time they will take to the hills at once, and I believe that many have already stored up grain in hiding-places there. This time it may be hoped that a few weeks or months at most may see Tippoo driven back, and for that time the peasants can manage to exist in the hills. No doubt the richer sort, who have large flocks of goats and many cattle, will, as soon as danger threatens, drive them down to Madras, where they are sure to fetch good prices for the use of the army. I have already told all men who have bullock-carts and teams that they can, if forced to leave home, earn a good living by taking service in the English transport train. I hope, therefore, that the results will not be so disastrous as before. The town may be burnt down again, but unless they blow up my palace, they can do little harm to it. When I rebuilt it, seeing the possibility of another war, I would not have any wood whatever used in its construction. Therefore, when the hangings are taken down and the furniture from these rooms cleared out, there will be nothing to burn, and they are not likely to waste powder in blowing it up. As to the town, I warned the people who returned that it might be again destroyed before long, and therefore there has been no solid building. The houses have all been lightly run up with wood, which is plentiful enough in the hills, and no great harm, therefore, will be done if it is again burnt down. The pagoda and palace are the only stone buildings in it. They did some harm to the former last time by firing a shot at it for a day or two, and as you can see for yourself, no attempt has since been made to repair it, and I do not suppose they will trouble to damage it further. So, you see, Dick, we are prepared for the worst. Will you fight again as you did last time, uncle? I do not know, Dick. I show my loyalty to the English rule by repairing to the capital, but my force is too small to render much service. You see, my revenues have greatly diminished, and I cannot afford to keep up so large a force as my father could. Fortunately, his savings had been considerable, and from these I was able to build his palace, and to succor my people, and have still enough to keep up my establishment here without pressing the cultivators of the soil for taxes. This year is the first that I have drawn any revenue from that source, but, at any rate, I am not disposed to keep up a force which, while it would be insufficient to be of any great value in a war like this, would be a heavy tax on my purse. Even the force you have must be that, uncle. Not so much as you would think, Dick, with your English notions. The pay here is very small, so small that it would seem to you impossible for a man to live on it, and yet many of these men have wives and families. All of them have patches of land that they cultivate, only twenty who are changed once a month, being kept on duty. They are necessary, for I should have but little respect from my people, unless, still from other rajahs, did I not have sentries at the gates and a guard ready to turn out in honour of any visitor who might arrive? To say nothing of an escort, of half a dozen men, when I ride through the country. Of course all can be called out whenever I want them, as, for example, when I rode to Madras to meet you. The men think themselves well off upon the pay of three rupees a month, as they are practically only on duty two months each year, and have the rest of the time to cultivate their fields. Therefore, with the pay of the officers, my troop only costs me about four hundred rupees a month, which is, you know, equivalent to forty English pounds, so that you cannot call it an expensive army, even if it is kept for show rather than force. No, indeed, uncle, it seems ridiculous that a troop of a hundred men can be kept up for five hundred pounds a year. Of course, the men have some little privileges, Dick. They pay no rent or taxes for their lands. This is a great thing for them, and really costs me nothing, as there is so much land lying uncultivated. Then, when they are too old for service, they have a pension of two rupees a month for life, 
and on that and what little land they can cultivate they are comparatively comfortable. Well, it does not seem to me, uncle, that soldiering is a good trade in this country. I don't know that it is a good trade in the money way anywhere. After all, the pay out here is quite as high in comparison with the ordinary rate of earning of a peasant as it is in England. It is never the pay that tempts soldiers. Among young men there are always great numbers who prefer the life to that of a peasant, working steadily from daylight to dark, and I don't know that I altogether blame them. Then you think, uncle, there is no doubt whatever that there will be war? Not a shadow of a doubt, Dick. Indeed, it may be said to have begun already, and like the last it is largely due to the incapacity of the government of Madras. I have just received a message from Arcot, the Rajah said two months later, and I must go over and see the Nabob. I thought, Mrs. Holland said, that Tripadli was no longer subject to him. I understood that our father was made independent of Arcot. No, Margaret, not exactly that. The Nabob had involved himself in very heavy debts during the great struggle. The company had done something to help him, but were unable to take all his debts on their shoulders, and indeed there was no reason why they should have done so, for although during most of the war he was their ally, he was fighting on his own behalf and not on theirs. In the war with Hyder it was different. He was then quite under English influence, and indeed could scarcely be termed independent. And as he suffered terribly, his lands were wasted, his towns besieged, and his people driven off into slavery, the company are at present engaged in negotiations for assisting him to pay his debts, which are very heavy. It was before you left, when the Nabob was much pressed for money, and had at that time no claim on the company, that our father bought of him a perpetual commutation of tribute, taxes, and other monies and subsidiaries payable by Tripotli. Thus I am no longer tributary to Arcot. Nevertheless, this forms a portion of the Nabob's territories, and I cannot act as if I were an independent prince. I could not make a treaty with Mysore on my own account, and it is clear that neither Arcot nor the English could allow me to do so, for in that case Mysore could erect fortresses here, and could use Tripatli as an advanced post on the plain. Therefore I am still subject to the Nabob, and could be called upon for military service by him. Indeed, that is one of the reasons why, even if I could afford it, I should not care to keep up a force of any strength. As it is, my troop is too small to be worth summoning. The Nabob has remonstrated with me more than once, but since the war with Hyder I have had a good excuse, namely that the population has so decreased that my lands lie untilled, and it would be impossible for me to raise a larger force. I have, however, agreed that, in case of a fresh war, I will raise an additional hundred cavalry. I expect it is in relation to this that he has sent for me to Arcot. We know that the English are bound by their treaty with Trevancore to declare war. They ought in honour to have done it long ago, but they were unprepared. Now that they are nearly ready, they may do so at any time, and indeed the Nabob may have learned that fighting has begun. The lookout is bad. The government of Madras is just as weak and as short-sighted as it was during Hyder's war. There is but one comfort, and that is that Lord Cornwallis at Calcutta has far greater power than his predecessors, and as he is an experienced soldier, and is said to be an energetic man, he may bring up reinforcements from Calcutta without loss of time, and also set the troops of Bombay in motion. I expect that, as before, things will go badly at first, but I hope that, this time, we shall end by giving Mysore so heavy a lesson that she will be powerless for mischief in future. And release all the captives, Mrs. Holland exclaimed, clasping her hands. 
"'I sincerely trust so, Margaret,' her brother said gravely. "'But after what happened last time we must not be sanguine. Scattered about as they may be in the scores of little hill-forts that dot the whole country, we can unhappily never be sure that all are delivered when we have only the word of a treacherous tyrant like Tippoo. We know that last time he kept back hundreds of prisoners, among whom, as we may hope, was your husband, and it may be that, however completely he may be defeated, he may yet retain some of them, knowing full well it is impossible that all these hill-forts and their dungeons can be searched. However, doubtless, if an English army marches to Sarinkapatam, many will be recovered, though we have reason to fear that many will, as before, be murdered before our arrival. When the Rajah returned from Arcot on the following day, he brought back the news that General Meadows had moved to the frontier of Karur, fifty miles beyond Trichinopoly, and that the war was really about to begin. You know, he said, how matters stand up to now. Tippoo, after making peace with the Nizam and the Marathis, with whom he had been engaged in hostilities for some time, turned his attention to the western coast, where Kurg and Malabar had risen in rebellion, after, as usual, perpetrating horrible atrocities, and after sending a large proportion of the population as slaves to Mysore, he marched against Travancore. Now, Travancore was specially mentioned in the Treaty of Mangalore as one of the allies of the English, with whom Tippoo bound himself not to make war, and had he not been prepared to fight the English, he would not have attacked their ally. The excuse for attacking Travancore was that some of the fugitives from Coorg and Malabar had taken refuge there. Seeing that Tippoo was bent upon hostilities, Lord Cornwallis and his council at Calcutta directed, as I learnt from an official at Madras, the authorities there to begin at once to make preparations for war. Instead of doing so, Mr. Holland, the governor, gave the Rajah the shameful and cowardly advice to withdraw his protection from the fugitives. The Rajah refused to comply with such counsel and after some months spent in negotiations, Tippoo attacked the walls that run along the northern frontier of Travancore. Now that was about six months ago. Yes, it was on the 28th of December, so it is just six months. His troops, 14,000 strong, made their way without difficulty through a breach, but they were suddenly attacked by a small body of Travancore men. A panic seized them. They rushed back to the breach, and in a wild struggle to pass through it, no less than 2,000 were either killed or crushed to death. It was nearly three months before Tippoo renewed his attack. The lines were weak, and his army was so strong that resistance was impossible. A breach three-quarters of a mile in length was made in the wall, and, marching through this, he devastated Travancore from end to end. His unaccountable delay before assaulting the position has been of great advantage to us. Had he attacked at once, instead of wasting his time before Travancore, he would have found the Carnatic so defenceless and as completely at his mercy as Hyder did. He would still have done so had it depended upon Madras, but as the authorities here did nothing, Lord Cornwallis took the matter into his own hands. He was about to come here himself when General Meadows, formerly Governor of Bombay, arrived, invested by the company with the offices of both Governor and Commander-in-Chief. Meadows landed here late in February, and at once set to work to prepare for war. Lord Cornwallis sent from Calcutta a large amount of money, stores, and ammunition, and a battalion of artillerymen. The sepoys objected to travel by sea, as their caste rules forbade them to do so, and he therefore sent off six battalions of infantry by land, and the Nabob tells me they are expected to arrive in four or five weeks' time. The Nabob of Arcot and the Rajah of Tanjore, both of whom are very heavily in debt to the government, 
are ordered during the continuance of the war to place their revenues at its disposal, a liberal allowance being made to them both for their personal expenses. Tipu is still in Travancore, at least he was there ten days ago, and has been endeavouring to negotiate. The Nabob tells me he believes that the object of General Meadows in advancing from Trichinopoly to Karur is to push on to Coimbatore, where he will, if he arrives before Tipu, cut him off from his return to his capital, and as Meadows has a force of fifteen thousand men, he ought to be able to crush the tyrant at a blow. I fear, however, there is little chance of this. The Mysore troops move with great rapidity, and as soon as Tipu hears that the English army is marching toward Karur, he is sure to take alarm, and by this time has probably passed Coimbatore on his way back. With all his faults, Tipu is a good general, and the Nabob's opinion, and I quite agree with him, is that as soon as he regains the tableland of Mysore, he will take advantage of the English army being far away to the south, and will pour down through the passes into this part of the Carnatic, which is at present absolutely defenceless. This being the case, I shall at once get ready to leave for Madras, and shall move as soon as I learn for certain that Tipu has slipped past the English. The Nabob has called upon me to join him with my little body of cavalry, and as soon as the news comes that Tipu is descending the passes, I shall either join him or the English army. That will be a matter to decide afterwards. You'll take me with you, of course, Uncle? Dick asked eagerly. Well, certainly, Dick. If you are old enough to undertake the really perilous adventure of going up in disguise to Mysore, you are certainly old enough to ride with me. Besides, we may hope that this time the war is not going to be as one-sided as it was the last time, and that we may end by reaching Seringapatam, in which case we may rescue your father, if he is still alive, very much more easily than it could be managed in the way you propose. The news that the English army had marched to Karor, and that there was no force left to prevent the Mysoreans from pouring down from the hills, spread quickly. And when Dick went out with the two boys into the town, groups of people were talking earnestly in the streets. Some of them came up and asked respectfully if there was any later news. "'Nothing later than you have heard,' Dick said. "'The Raja is not going away yet, Sahib. No, no, he will, he will not leave unless he hears that Tipu has returned with his army to Seringapatam. Then he will go at once, for the Sultan might come down through the passes at any moment, and can get here a fortnight before the English army can return from Karur. Yes, it will be no use waiting here to be eaten up, Sahib. Do you think Kanjavaram would be safe? Because it is easy to get down there by boat. I should think so. Hyder could not take it last time, and the English army is much stronger than it was then. Besides, there will be six thousand men arriving from Bengal in a month's time so I should think there is no fear of Kanjavaram being taken. It is a little trouble getting there, but it is a long journey to Madras. We could go down with our families and goods in two days in a boat, but there would not be boats enough for all, and it will be best, therefore, that some should go at once, for if all wait until there is news that Tipu is coming, many will not be able to get away in time. No, no, not in boats, Dick agreed, but in three days a bullock cart could get you there. Next day several of the shops containing the most valuable goods were shot up, and day by day the number remaining open grew smaller. "'It is as I expected,' the Rajah said one morning as he came into the room where the family was sitting. "'A messenger has just come in from the Nabob with the news that sickness broke out among the army. As soon as they arrived at Karur, and in twenty-four hours a thousand men were in hospital. This delayed the movement, and when they arrived at Coimbatore they were too late.' Tipu and his army had already passed, moving by forced marches back to Mysore. 
Finish your packing, ladies. We will start at daybreak tomorrow morning. I secured three boats four days ago and have been holding them in readiness. Rajbulab will go in charge of you. There is not the least fear of Tipoo being here for another fortnight at the earliest. I shall ride with the troop. Dick and the boys will go with me. We shall meet you at Conjavaram. I have already arranged with some of our people who have gone on in their bullock carts with their belongings, and will unload them there, to be in readiness to take our goods on to Madras, so there will be no delay in getting forward. By nightfall the apartments were completely dismantled. The furniture was all stowed away in a vault which the Rajah had had constructed for the purpose, when the palace was rebuilt. Access was obtained to it through the floor in one of the private apartments. The floor was of tessellated marble, but some ten squares of it lifted up in a mass forming together a trap-door, from which steps led down into the vault. When the block was lowered again the fit was so accurate that, after sweeping a little dust over the joint, the opening was quite imperceptible to anyone not aware of the hiding-place. The cushions of the divans were taken down here as well as the furniture, and all the less valuable carpets, rugs, and hangings, while the costlier articles were rolled up into bales for transport. The silver cups and other valuables were packed in boxes, and were during the night carried by coolies down to the boats, over which a guard was placed until morning. Provisions for the journey down the river were also placed on the boat. The palace was astir long before daybreak. The cushions that had been slept on during the night were carried down to the boats, the boxes of wearing apparel closed and fastened, and a hasty meal was taken. The sun was just rising when they started. One boat had been fitted up with a bower of green boughs for the use of the two ladies and their four attendants. The other two carried the baggage. After seeing them push off, the Rajah, his sons, and Dick returned to the palace. Here, for a couple of hours, he held a sort of audience and gave his advice to the townspeople, and any others who came, in considerable numbers, to consult with him. When this was done, they went into the courtyard, where all was ready for their departure. The troop had, during the past week, been raised to two hundred men, many of the young cultivators coming eagerly forward, as soon as they heard that the Rajah was going to increase his troop, being anxious to take a share in the adventures that might be looked for, and to avenge the sufferings that had been inflicted on their friends by Hyder's marauders. They were a somewhat motley troop, but this mattered little, as uniformity was unknown among the forces of the native princes. The majority were stout young fellows, all provided their own horses and arms, and although the former lacked the weight and bone of English cavalry horses, they were capable of performing long journeys, and of existing on rations on which an English horse would starve. All were well armed, for any deficiency had been made up from the Rajah's store, and from this a large number of guns had three days before been distributed among such of the ryots as intended to take to the hills on the approach of the enemy. Ammunition had also been distributed among them, Every man in the troop carried a shield and tulwar, and on his back was slung a musket or spear, and there were few without pistols in their girdles. They rode halfway to Conjavaram, and stopped for the night at a village, the men sleeping in the open air while the Rajah, his sons, and Dick were entertained by the chief man of the place. The next morning they rode into Conjavaram, where, just at sunset, the boats also arrived. The troop encamped outside the town, while the Rajah and his party occupied some rooms that had been secured beforehand for them. In the morning the ladies proceeded in a native carriage, with the troop, an officer and ten men following in charge of the bullock carts containing the baggage. On reaching Madras they encamped on the Maiden, a large open space used as a drill-ground for the troops garrisoned there. 
and the Rajah and his party established themselves in the house occupied by him on the occasion of his last visit. The next day the Rajah went to the government house and had an interview with the deputy governor. If Tippoo comes down from the hills, he'll not be able to take the field against him, and will need all his forces to defend Arcot, Velora, and his smaller forts, and cavalry would be of no real use to him. Your troop would be of much greater utility to the battalions from Bengal when they arrive. They'll be here in three weeks or so, and as soon as they come I'll attach you to them. I'll write to the Nabob, saying that you are about to join him, but that in the interest of the general defence I had thought better, at present, to attach you to the Bengal contingent. You see, they will be entirely new to the country, and it will be a great advantage to them to have a troop like yours, many of whom are well acquainted with the roads and general geography of the country. Your speaking English, too, will, of course, add to your usefulness. I have a nephew with me who speaks English perfectly, and also Hindustani, the Rajah said. He is a smart young fellow, and I have no doubt that the officer in command would be able to make him very useful. He is eager to be of service. His father, who was an Englishman, was wrecked some years ago on the west coast, and sent up a prisoner to Mysore. He was not one of those handed over at the time of the peace, but whether he has been murdered or is still a prisoner in Tippoo's hands, we do not know. My sister came out with the boy three or four months ago to endeavour to obtain some news of him. I'll make a note of it, Rajah. I have no doubt that he will be of great use to Colonel Cockerell. In the last week in July, the Rajah moved with his troop to Conjavaram, and on the 1st of August the Bengal forces arrived there. They were joined at once by three regiments of Europeans, one of native cavalry and a strong force of artillery, raising their numbers to 9,500 men. Colonel Kelly took command of the force and begged the Rajah to advance with his horsemen at once to the foot of the Ghats, to break it up into half-troops, and to capture or destroy any small parties of horse Tipu might send down, by any of the passes, to reconnoiter the country and to ascertain the movements and strength of the British forces. He was also to endeavour to obtain as much information as he could of what was going on in Mysore, and to ascertain whether Tipu was still with his army, watching General Meadows in the west, or was moving as if with the intention of taking advantage of the main force of the English being away south, to descend into the Karmatek. The order was a very acceptable one to the Rajah. His troop made a good appearance enough when in company with those of the Nabob of Arcot, but he could not but feel that they looked a motley body by the side of the trained native and European troops, and he was frequently angered by hearing the jeering comments of English soldiers to each other when he rode past them with his troop, and had not a little astonished the speakers more than once by turning round on his horse and abusing them hotly in their own language. He was therefore glad to be off, for such work his men were far better fitted than they were even the native cavalry in the company's service. They were stout, active fellows accustomed to the hills, and speaking the dialect used by the shepherds and villagers among the Ghats. Proceeding northward through Valor, he there divided his force into four bodies. He himself, with fifty men, took up a position at the mouth of the pass of Ambur, Another fifty were sent to the pass of Mugni, to the west of Chitour, under the command of Anwar, the captain of the troop. The rest were distributed among the minor passes. Dick remained with his uncle, who established himself in a village seven miles up the pass. He was well satisfied with the arrangement, for he was anxious to learn to go about among the hills as a spy, and was much more likely to get leave from his uncle to do so than he would have been from any of the officers of the troop who would not have ventured to allow the Rajah's nephew to run into any danger. 
In the second place, his especial friend among the officers, a youth named Surajah, son of Rajbulab, was with the detachment. Surajah had been especially picked out by the Rajah as Dick's companion. He generally joined him in his rides, and they had often gone on shooting excursions among the hills. He was about three years Dick's senior, but in point of height there was but little difference between them. Every day half the troop under an officer rode up the pass until within a mile of the fort near the summit, garrisoned by Mysorean troops. They were able to obtain but little information, for the villages toward the upper end of the pass were all deserted and in ruins, the inhabitants never having ventured back since Hyder's invasion. The Rajah was vexed at being able to learn nothing of what was passing on the plateau, and was therefore more disposed than he might otherwise have been to listen to Dick's proposal. "'Don't you think, uncle,' the latter said one evening, "'that I might try to learn something by going up with Surajah alone? We could strike off into the hills, as if on a shooting expedition, just as we used to do from Tripatli, except that I should stain my face and hands. The people in the villages on the top of the ghats are, everyone says, simple and quiet. They have no love for Tipu or Mysore, but are content to pay their taxes and to work quietly in their fields. There will be little fear of our being interfered with by them. You might find a party of Tipu's troops in one of the villages, Dick, and get into trouble. I don't see why we should, Uncle. Of course, we should not go up dressed as we are, but as shikaris, and when we went into a village should begin by asking whether the people are troubled with any tigers in the neighborhood. You see, I especially came out here to go into Mysore in disguise, and I should be getting a little practice in this way besides obtaining news for you. I am certainly anxious to get news, Dick. So far I have had nothing to send down, except that the reports from all the passes agree in saying that they have learned nothing of any movement on the part of Tipu, and that no spies have come down the passes, or any armed party, whatever. This is good, so far as it goes, but it only shows that the other passes are, like this, entirely deserted. Therefore, we really know nothing whatever. Even at this moment, Tipu might have fifty thousand men gathered on the crest of the hills, ready to pour down tomorrow through one of the passes, and therefore, as I do not think you would be running any great danger, I consent to your going with Surajah on a scouting expedition, on foot, among the hills. As you say, you must, of course, disguise yourselves as peasants, you had better, in addition to your guns, each take a brace of pistols, and so armed, even if any of the villagers were inclined to be hostile, they would not care about interfering with you. Thank you, uncle. When would you expect us back if we start tomorrow morning? That must be entirely in your hands, Dick. You would hardly climb the ghats and light upon a village in one day, and it might be necessary to go farther before you could obtain any news. It's a broken country with much jungle for some distance beyond the hills, and the villages lying off the roads will have but little communication with each other, and might know nothing whatever of what has happened in the cultivated plains beyond. At any rate, you must not go into any village on the roads leading to the heads of the passes, for there are forts everywhere, and you would be certain to find parties of troops stationed in them. Even before war broke out I knew that this was the case, as they were stationed there to prevent any captives, native or European, escaping from Mysore. You must therefore strictly avoid all the main roads, even though it may be necessary to proceed much farther before you can get news. I should think, if we say three days going and as many returning, it will be as little as we can count upon, and I shall not begin to feel at all uneasy if you do not reappear for a week. It is of no use your returning without some information as to what is going on in Mysore, and it would be folly to throw away your work and trouble when, in another day or two, 
you might get the news you want. I shall therefore leave it entirely to your discretion. Greatly pleased at having succeeded beyond his expectations, Dick at once sought out Surajah. The latter was very gratified when he heard that he was to accompany the young sahib on such an expedition, and at once set about the necessary preparations. There was no difficulty in obtaining in the village the clothes required for their disguises, and one of the sheep intended for the following day's rations was killed, and a leg boiled. If we take in addition to this ten pounds of flour, a gourd of ghee, and a little pan for frying the cakes in, we shall be able to get on without having to buy food for four or five days. And, of course, when we are once among the villages, we shall have no difficulty in getting more. You had better cut the meat off the bone and divide it in two portions, and divide the flour, too. Then we can each carry our share. I will willingly carry it all, Sahib. Not at all, Surajah. We will each take our fair share. You see, we shall have a gun, pistols, ammunition, and a tulwar, and that with seven or eight pounds of food each and our water bottles will be quite enough to carry up the ghats. The only thing we want now is some stain. I will get something that will do and bring it with me in the morning, Sahib. It won't take you a minute to put it on. I will come for you at the first gleam of daylight. Dick returned to the cottage he occupied with his uncle, and told him what preparations they had made for their journey, and they sat talking over the details for another hour. The Rajah's last words as they lay down for the night were, "'Don't forget to take a blanket each. You will want it for sleeping in the open, which you will probably have to do several times, although you may occasionally be able to find shelter in a village.' By the time the sun rose the next morning, they were well upon their way. They had a good deal of toilsome climbing, but by nightfall had surmounted the most difficult portions of the ascent, and encamped, when it became dark, in a small wood. Here they lighted a fire, cooked some cakes of flour, and with these and the cold meat made a hearty meal. They had during the day halted twice, and had breakfasted and lunched off some bread, of which they had brought sufficient for the day's journey. "'I suppose there is no occasion to watch, Surajah?' "'I don't know, Sahib. I do not think it will be safe for us both to sleep. There are, as you know, many tigers among these hills, and although they would not approach us as long as the fire is burning brightly, they might steal up and carry one of us off when the fire gets low. I will therefore watch.' "'I certainly should not let you do that without taking my turn,' Dick said, "'and I feel so tired with the day's work that I do not think I could keep awake for ten minutes. It would be better to sleep in a tree than that.' You would not get much sleep in a tree, Sahib. I have done it once or twice when I have been hunting in a tiger-infested neighborhood, but I got scarcely any sleep, and I was so stiff in the morning that I could hardly walk. I would rather sit up all night and keep up a good fire than do that. Dick thought for a minute or two, and then got up and walked about under the trees, keeping his eyes fixed upon the branches overhead. This will do, he said at last. Come here, Surajah. There. You see those two branches coming out on the same direction? At one point they are about five or six feet apart. We might fasten our blankets side by side with the help of the straps of our water bottles and the slings of the guns, so as to make what are called on board ship hammocks, and lie there perfectly safe and comfortable. Surajah nodded. I have a coil of leather thong, Sahib. I thought that it might be useful if we wanted to bind a prisoner or for any other purpose, so I stuffed it into my waist-sash. That is good. Let us lose no time, for I am quite ready for sleep. I'll climb up first. In ten minutes the blankets were secured, fastened side by side, between the branches. Surajah descended, threw another armful of wood onto the fire, placed their meat in the crutch of a bough, six feet above the ground, 
and then climbed the tree again. Thus they were soon lying side by side in their blankets. These bagged rather inconveniently under their weight, but they were too tired to mind trifles, and were very soon fast asleep. Dick did not wake until Surajah called him. It was already broad daylight. His companion had slipped down quietly, stirred up the embers of the fire, thrown on more wood, and cooked some chupatis before waking him. "'It is too bad, Surajah,' Dick said, as he looked down. "'You ought to have woke me. I will unfasten these blankets before I get down. It will save time after breakfast.' Half an hour later they were again on their way, and shortly came upon a boy herding some goats. He looked doubtfully at them, but seeing that they were not Mysorean soldiers, he did not attempt to fly. "'How far is it to the next village, lad?' Surajah asked. "'And which is the way? We are shikaris, and are there any tigers about?' "'Oh, plenty of them,' the boy said. "'I drive the goats to a strong high stockade every evening, and would not come out before the sun rose, for all the money they say the sultan has.' Make for that tree, and close to it you will see a spring. Follow that down. It will take you to the village. After walking six hours they came to the village. It was a place of some little size, but there were few people about. Women came to the doors to look at Surajah and Dick as they came along. Where are you from? an old man asked as he came out from his cottage. From down the mountainside. Tigers are getting scarce there, and we thought we would come over and see what we could do here. "'Here there are many tigers,' the old man said. "'For the last twenty years the wars have taken most of our young men away. Some are forced to go against their will, for when the order comes to the head man of the village that the sultan requires so many soldiers, he is forced to pick out those best suited for service. Others go of their own free will, thinking soldiering easier work than tilling the fields, besides the chance of getting rich booty. So there are but few shikaris, and the tigers multiply and are a curse to us.' We are but poor people, but if you choose to stay here for a while, we will pay something for every tiger you kill, and we will send round to the other villages within ten miles, and doubtless every one of them will contribute, so that you might get enough to pay for your exertions. We will think of it, Surajai replied. We did not intend to stop in one village, but proposed to travel about in the jungle-covered district, and wherever we hear complaints of a tiger committing depredations, we will stop and do our best to kill the evil beast. We mean first to find out where they are most troublesome, and then we shall work back again. We hear that the Sultan gives good prices for those taken alive. I have heard so, the old man said, but none have been caught alive here or by anyone in the villages round. The Sultan generally gets them from the royal forests, where none are allowed to shoot, save with his permission. Sometimes, when there is a lack of them there, his hunters come into these districts and catch them in pitfalls and have nets and ropes with which the tigers are bound and taken away. A little crowd had by this time collected round them, and the women, when they heard that the strangers were shikaris, who had come up with the intention of killing tigers, brought them bowls of milk, cakes, and other presents. "'I suppose now that the Sultan is away at war,' Dick said, "'his hunters do not come here for tigers.' "'We know nothing of his wars,' a woman said. "'They take our sons from us, and we do not see them again.' We did hear a report that he had gone with an army to conquer Travancore, but why he should want to do it none of us can make out. His dominions are as wide as the heart of man can require. It is strange that he cannot rest contented, but like his father should be always taking our sons away to fight. However, these things are beyond the understanding of poor people like us, but we can't help thinking that it would be better if he were to send his armies to destroy all the tigers. If he would do that, we should not grudge the sums we have to pay when the tax-gatherers come round. After pausing for an hour in the village, they continued on their way. Two or three other small collections of huts were passed, but it was not until the evening of the next day 
that they issued from the jungle-covered country into the cultivated plain. At none of the places they had passed was there anything known as to Tippoo or his army, but they were told that there were parties of troops in all the villages along the edge of the plain, as well as in the passages. "'We must be careful now, Surajah,' Dick said, as after a long day's march they sat down to rest at a distance of half a mile from a large village. "'Our tale, that we are shikaris, will not do here. Had that really been our object, we should have stopped at the first place we came to, and, at any rate, we should not have come beyond the jungle. We might still say that we are shikaris, but that tigers had become scarce on the other side of the hills, and hearing a talk that Tippoo and the English are going to war with each other, we made up our minds to go to Seringapatam and enlist in his army. Now that would do very well, Surajah agreed. They would have no reason for doubting us, and even if the officer here were to suggest that we should enlist under him, we could do so, as there would be no difficulty in slipping away and making off into the jungle again. They waited until the sun set, and then walked on to the village. They had scarcely entered when two armed men stopped them and questioned them whence they came. Surajah repeated the story they had agreed upon, and the men appeared quite satisfied. "'You will be just in time,' one said. "'We have news that the Sultan has just moved with his army to Surigabatam. Officers came here only yesterday to buy up cattle and grain. These are to be retained here until orders are received where they are to be sent, so I should say that he is coming this way.' and will be going down the passes, as Hyder did. We shall be very glad, for I suppose we shall join as he passes along. It has been dull work here, and we are looking forward to gaining our share of the loot. It would be just as well for you to join us here now as to go on to Sarengapatam. It would save us a long tramp, Surajah agreed. We will think it over, and maybe we will have a talk with your officer tomorrow morning. They sauntered along with the men, talking as they went, and so escaped being questioned by other soldiers. Presently they made the excuse that they wanted to buy some flour and ghee before the shops were closed, and with a friendly nod to the two soldiers stopped before the stall of a peasant who had, on a small stand in front of him, a large jar of ghee. Having purchased some, they went a little farther and laid in a fresh supply of flour. "'Things are very dear,' Surajah remarked. "'There's very little left in the village,' the man said. "'All the flour was bought up yesterday for the Sultan's army, which they say is coming in this direction.' and I have only got what you see here. It has been pounded by my wife and some other women since morning. That's good enough, Dick said as they walked away. Our work is done, Surajah, and it's not likely that we should learn anything more if we were to stop here for a week. Let us turn down between these houses and make our way round behind. We might be questioned again by a fresh party of soldiers if we were to go along the street. They kept along on the outskirts of the village, regaining the road by which they had come, and walked on until they reached the edge of the jungle. Going a short distance among the trees, they collected some sticks, lit a fire, and sat down to cook their meal. At the last village or two they had heard but little of tigers, and now agreed that they could safely lie down, and that it would not be necessary for them to rig up their blankets as hammocks, as they had done on the first two nights. End of chapter 5. War Declared. Recording by Mike Harris.